Would you turn to Colossians chapter 2? We are making our way through the book of Colossians verse by verse. And uh, today we find ourselves in um, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. So we're going be going through two verses today, verse 3 and verse 4. And the Word of God says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. If I would ask you, what would be the greatest three gifts that you would ever have in your life? What would they be? Now, the first greatest gift you would ever have is given. That's Jesus Christ. All right? He's the giver of life. He's the satisfier of the soul. That's okay. That's quite acceptable. That's fine. But what about the second and the third? What would they be? Let me tell you what they are. The second best gift you could ever have is realizing the greatness of the first gift. And the third is realizing that you can never exhaust the second gift. The first gift is Christ. And the second gift is to be stunned away, to be to be blown away by Christ. And in the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh best gifts you could ever have is realizing that you can never drain the infinite ocean of learning about Jesus' greatness for you. In other words, we must believe this. We must believe that there is far more greatness about Jesus that we yet don't know. There is far more glory that we haven't beheld yet. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we worship today. The God who saves people from their sin. And the phrase that we just read earlier is yet again another phrase that speaks of Jesus' greatness. It is only to reinforce the same idea that is being carried through from chapter 1. What is it? That Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. Or we can put it in another way. We can say, if you have Christ and nothing else, it is as though you have everything. And the opposite is also true. If you have everything and you don't have Christ, it's as though you've got nothing, absolutely nothing. Now, again, a reminder, the book of Colossians is the one singular book, perhaps even, I would say, far more than the Gospels and all the other Pauline epistles that, that stresses in the fact that Jesus is all we need. Are we feeling enslaved to sin and we want to be set free? Well, 
chapter 1, verse 14, it says, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Are we feeling unsatisfied, unfulfilled, and we want to kind of feel that sense of completeness? Colossians 2.10, And in him you have been made complete. Are we in a search hunt for meaning of life, a sense of identity and well-being? Colossians 3.4, Christ is our life. Everything that we need for salvation, for everlasting life, abundant life, for future hope and glory found in him alone. Again, like we said last time, it's, it's like Paul, when he came to write this book, it's as though he picked up that pen of his and, and then he turned it into a hammer. And with the power of God that was mightily working through him, he would pick that nail of the sufficiency of Christ and he would strike it again and again. And today is yet another phrase. Let me read it one more time. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's another stroke that brings that idea home. Jesus is all we need, brothers and sisters. There is no wisdom or knowledge that pertains to life that is not found in Christ. Now, I just want to pause here, and I do want to mention something to you. I did mention it to some of you um, in the last couple of days. I have to say that this bit has been by far the most difficult passage for me to get my head around in the book of Colossians. It, it seems simple. But because it's so simple, it's been so difficult. Read many commentaries and they had different opinions and different ideas and interpretation of what this means. Now I can go further and make it more technical to explain to you why it's been so hard on me to understand it. But um, it suffice to, to, to know that, that it is a bit of a, a difficult phrase. Maybe in the evening we can talk a little bit more about what that means. But by God's grace, what we want to do, we want to break this down, extract as much sweet juice out of it as we possibly can in order to even go further in understanding the beauty, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Amen? We have five points. The first one is the person of Christ. That's what we start with, the person of Christ. We start with this because of two reasons. Number one, verse three, the first two words, it says, in whom? In whom? Who's whom? It's referring back to the last sentence of verse two. It says, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. What is God's mystery? Or more, more accurately, who is Christ's mystery, Christ, God's mystery? Christ himself. The second reason why we'll start with personhood of Christ is because unfortunately last week we didn't get around an opportunity to, to, to explain this phrase resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself. What does it mean that Jesus is mystery? Why is he a mystery? Well, because with all the Old Testament prophecies about him, 
do we realize that the identity of Jesus' personhood has been hidden, lurking in the shadow of smoke of the, of the offering sacrifices and the ceremonial law? It's been lurking in that shadow. That's what a mystery is, something that is unknown, hidden in the past. Christ has always been a mystery. And though he's today revealed, yet he is mind-boggling. You can't put him in a box. He's unfathomable. No one could ever figure out who he is. So much so that many Jewish scholars at that time in the Old Testament, when they studied the person and the works of the Messiah, you know what they concluded? They falsely concluded, many of them that is, that it has to be two separate distinct persons. It's impossible, they would say. How could it be that it will be one person? Why? Because the Old Testament spoke of Christ as a suffering servant, that he has no majesty, right? No beauty that anyone could desire him, that anyone should desire him. And yet, in other places, it speaks of him, that he's reigning supreme, majestic king that has no equal. In one hand, it speaks of him that he is eternal father, the ancient of days, that his kingdom has no end. In other words, he has no beginning. He has no end. And yet, he'll be born of a virgin. He will die. And his grave will be uh, assigned with the wicked men, the Bible says. So is he eternal or is he finite? In one hand, it's the Father's delight. He is the Father's delight in Isaiah 42 verse 1. And yet, it also says that, that the Father is pleased to crush him. So Isaiah 53.10. In one hand, we know that the Father will give him all the nations. That's how much he's cherishing him. And yet, in the Psalms, it tells us that the Father will forsake him. Abandon him. All that is to say that Jesus is a mystery. You can't categorize him. You can't contain him. Yet you can't dismiss him. He is the Christ that you can't ignore. Mystery. Now let me tell you, this mysterious person, who he is, what the scripture tells us about him. Let me give you some of those beautiful, marvelous things that are applied to Jesus Christ theologically, biblically. That he's the king of kings. He is higher above the clouds. His name is higher above all other names. His glory fills the earth. Mountains will melt before him. All rivers will clap before him. And he is the one that all hills will sing for joy to him. And with one word, all kings will fall prostrate before him. And one day, all eyes will behold him. Brothers, when we get a good grip of who this Christ is, that mystery, we embrace him, receive him, follow him, 
follow him. We'll be, be able to stand strong against all challenges life will throw at us. This is the personhood, the person of Christ. But we now go deeper into this phrase and break it down all the more. Second point, the origin. He is the origin of wisdom and knowledge. Origin. Verse 3. First word, the preposition in. In whom? To have all treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in him. It means Jesus is the source, the origin. Jesus is the ultimate wellspring, the fountain out of whom all wisdom and knowledge flow. Do we realize that any right wisdom we encounter, it's ultimately a reflection of his wisdom. If we ever have any correct knowledge, it's only because Christ chooses to grant it to us. Is the origin, the source in him. Furthermore, it is not just that Jesus gives us knowledge. That's not what Paul is saying here. We're going to go deeper than that because it says in whom is knowledge, wisdom and knowledge, in him. What does this mean? If you ask, who is Jesus Christ? They'll have some unbelievers who will go as far as to say, oh, well, he's a great teacher, a very wise man beyond his time. He's probably the, the greatest speaker of all time. I mean, all you need to do is just read the Sermon on the Mount. Look at him. Look how he speaks. Look how he responds to the Pharisees. Such profound knowledge, such authority when he speaks. Ah, the way he informs us and imparts truth is not like any other man. Well, it's true. You cannot deny that. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying again, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, Jesus is the very embodiment of wisdom and knowledge. All knowledge are found in Jesus Christ. Matthew 9 verse 4 says, Jesus knowing their thoughts said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? John 6 64, For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who was it that would betray him. The scripture tells us, for he knew all men. Well, let me read to you Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son wills to reveal him. What does it mean that Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom and knowledge? It means that Jesus could never be deceived. 
He could never make a mistake. Jesus does not have plan B because his plan A always works. Every time, all the time. He's the only person in the whole universe that doesn't have the word oops in his dictionary. All right? He's the one that would never ever say, I should have done it this way. He never scratches his head. He never says, "Mm, man, I don't know. Why? Jesus' wisdom is infinitely vast. If you get all our encyclopedias, all the libraries of the whole world, and you put them together, all of them that would look like a tiny little worm in comparison to his amazing, profound knowledge. We must understand that Jesus stands so high above us. He doesn't need our counsel. He doesn't need our advice. His ways are above our ways. His knowledge is limitless. He's the origin, the the treasure house, if you like, of knowledge and wisdom. What a beautiful thing to seek his counsel. What a wonderful thing that even if the world deceives us and want to pull us and, and the, the current is strong to move in the opposite direction. What a wonderful thing to believe this truth and to go back to Christ and say to him, what would you have me to do, Jesus? Right? Now let's take it further. He's not only the treasure house, the origin of all knowledge, but he also has the ex- exclusive ownership. Exclusive ownership. Of wisdom and knowledge. Please note the next phrase. Are hidden. In whom are hidden. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Yes. Jesus has. All wisdom and knowledge in him. But it's. Only in Christ. He holds the patency over knowledge. Again, look, it is so exclusive that not only does he have all the knowledge in him, but they are hidden in him. Watch knowledge, all, pay attention to this word, all, not some, not most, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. What does this mean? All treasures and all Treasures of wisdom and knowledge are tucked so deep in his personhood. Beyond anyone's reach. Hidden. They're unknown by man's effort. Hidden doesn't mean that they're not accessible to anyone, but it just means that they're not accessible by man's strength. You can't say... Oh, I'm too clever, I'll work hard and I will attain all the true knowledge that I want. Listen, if Christ doesn't choose to grant wisdom and knowledge, no matter how hard we try, even the most knowledgeable human would be reduced to the level of ignorance. Would make monkeys look like professors compared to how foolish we would be. Without Jesus, gracious revelation... Our internet, all of it, would be filled with random words. 
meaningless thoughts. Our schools and universities will turn into a circus, no matter how advanced we pretend to be. Who is Jesus Christ? Matthew 8.27 says, The men were amazed at that time when he performed the miracle, and they said, What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? What kind of man is he? And the answer, according to this phrase that we looked at, well, he's the source, he's the embodiment, the treasure house. He has exclusive ownership over all knowledge and wisdom. And he stores this knowledge and wisdom in himself. He disperses them to whom he pleases, as he pleases, when he pleases, however much he pleases. In other words, Jesus has absolute authority and dominance over all knowledge. Whether physical or spiritual, whether medical, financial, educational, Jesus reigns supremely over professors, surgeons, lawyers, scientists, whether chemistry or geometry. And the one who the scripture says opens his hands and satisfies the desire of every living thing. He also opens his hands and satisfies the intellect of human. What does this mean to us, brothers and sisters? We should be encouraged by this. That he is sovereign over knowledge and wisdom. Why? Well, this is why Jesus could handpick uneducated, illiterate fishermen from the outback of Galilee. Nobody knows what Galilee is. It's like, I don't know, Bendigo or Ballarat to America. Nobody knows anything about it. And then he grabs his fishermen as foolish as they were. And yet, he's able to massage them change them and make them turn the whole world upside down with the gospel. He's able to bring this little young, uneducated David, shepherd, the youngest of his siblings, and turn him into a hero of faith, a warrior for God. Nothing is too difficult for the omniscient Jesus. That's the whole point. That's for brothers here. What about unbelievers? <laughs> I want to tell you something that ought to rattle you today. Because this Jesus all-knowing means that every evil thought, every evil word, every evil intent of the heart, he knows them all. Your sins that you can hardly remember. Dishonoring your parents when you were younger. Cheating on your exams. Mocking others. Every idle word. The hidden and shameful sins. 
Every single one of them. If If you flicked through porn pictures, videos of full of lustful desires in your heart as you're flicking them, every lying and deceiving word that came out of your mouth, every prideful thought, those secret sins which you've made sure you clean up the scene so that your wife would not find out or your father would not find out. He knows them all. And they will be brought against you in judgment day if you don't call upon him to save you. And what a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an all-knowing judge. The exclusivity of Christ. He knows it all. Number four, the treasures. The treasures. Now, if we want to zero in, And we want to find out what specific knowledge and wisdom does Paul have in mind when he penned down this phrase? What is it really that he wants to tell the Colossians and by extension us that is hidden in Christ? Where is Paul heading with this? Now pay attention. Paul doesn't say, In Christ are hidden all the wisdom and knowledge, although it is true. But he's not focusing on that. He's looking up higher than that. Of course they're all there, but that's not what he has in mind. He's going the highest point. And he says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not just wisdom and knowledge, but the treasures. His eyes focusing at the brim, at the top. Now, what's the difference? Why is this significant? Because treasures here means most valuable, the most precious, the most useful and priceless wisdom and knowledge that have eternal impact. These are the kinds of knowledge and wisdom that Paul has in mind that are hidden in Christ. What do they include? Knowledge and wisdom of God. Knowledge and wisdom of salvation, whether justification, that's how to be saved. Sanctification, that's how you grow. And glorification, all are hidden in Christ. How do I have my sins forgiven? How do I be saved? How do I know God's love and mercy for me? How do I grow in my love for God? Are there any better knowledge and wisdom that we would ever have? Anything that could be treasured more than these? Now, I believe that these are what Paul has in mind when he wrote this phrase. Why? How come? Why do I believe that Paul is focusing on this subject in particular? Well, let's continue verse 4. It says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. 
Now, persuasive argument, it means smooth talk. Like salesmen. Not the, not the Christian godly salesmen here. The bad guys. <laughs> the false teachers. So Paul is saying here, I'm saying what I'm saying to you. So you're not led astray. You're not deceived with lies that dress up as clever words. Why? What's going on? We need to understand something here. So we can put it in the right historical context that false teachers at that time were spreading an early version of Gnosticism. Have you heard this word before? Gnosticism is false ideology. Where they would say um, salvation, spiritual perfection comes through some secret or hidden knowledge. We spoke about this earlier on in chapter 1. I can't remember the exact verse. And this knowledge is not so much a um, solid, well-defined body of truth like the gospel. No. But it's more like mystical, magical experience. Where you sense you're in union with the higher power. And I would say, well, do you want salvation? Are you seeking after higher level of maturity? Well, what you need to do, if you want to experience this oneness with, with the universe, with, with the God of the universe, just move away from Christ. Well, what do I do? Well, practice chanting this mantra. Keep on repeating these words or this action. And then what happens? Well, you do these things and then you'll be saved. Once you'll have these goosebumps, you're going to feel one with the universe. You know, like the avatar where he gets his hair and you know, hooks it up to the root of the tree. Yeah? And in congratulation, you've become mature. Experience, feelings. And Paul is saying, no, big no. Why? No justification, no growth, no salvation except through Jesus Christ. No knowledge or wisdom that would lead to genuine salvation that is not hidden exclusively in Christ. So, if you want to access this knowledge, what must you do? You must know Christ. It's the only gateway to salvation and spiritual growth. Scripture says he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That there's no salvation, no name given under heaven among men that we must be saved except through Jesus Christ. Do you want to access the Father? You must go through Christ. Do you want to grow in your knowledge of God? Do you want to comprehend what it means that he loves you, it cannot be done without Christ. This is why we proclaim him and him alone. This is what it means that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, knowledge of what? Of God and of salvation are ever to be found in Jesus Christ. Well, 
If the knowledge of salvation and of God are only to be found in Jesus Christ, then what is outside of Jesus Christ? Foolishness and ignorance, right? Foolishness and ignorance. We need to understand this. 1 Corinthians, let me read to you a little passage from uh, chapter 1, verse 18 to 21. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Why? For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debtor? Debater of this age. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Why? For since the, in, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Here's the knowledge of God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, what does this mean? Outside of Christ, there's only foolishness and ignorance. The world looks at the cross and they would say, Huh? A poor, weak carpenter nailed naked on a tree and he summons men to come to him to, see, to receive forgiveness? And they look at this and what do they say? What do they say? Foolishness. Foolishness. Well, what's the alternative if that's foolishness? I dare you to go and ask any false religion out there this question. How do you have your sins forgiven? I dare you find an answer to this most basic and fundamental question of any religion. Go ahead and, and, and ask Muslims, Hindus, even Catholics and Orthodox. Mr. Mr. Priest, Mr. Pope, how do you have your sins forgiven? What do you get? Um, um, I don't know. What? You don't know? What do you mean you don't know? Fools! How come? Because they're all outside of Christ. Ah, sir, please don't offend me. Why? Well, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an atheist professor. I don't belong to any of these false religion groups. So don't offend me and call me a fool. The foolish said in his heart, there is no God. Well, very well, Mr. Atheist Professor. But, but even you, because you're outside of Christ, you are a fool. Where did all the creation come from? With all of its vast energy and matter. Listen to the, to the foolish answer by the atheists. What would the atheists say? Nothing. Nothing created space, time, and matter. The greatest and the latest intelligent professors the world could ever produce. 
the most advanced universities on the world stage are fools when answering even the most basic questions of life. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What's the aim of life? Where are we going when we die? They can't even define the difference between a male and a female. Even my dog can understand the difference. When the world rejects Jesus Christ, they have moved away from all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and what is left? Confusion, darkness, blind leading the blind. Ah, but there is a third group now. And it's probably closer to home. So, what do we have? What is the third group? Well, you have unbelievers around us that come and they listen to this message and they're sitting here among us and they say, Oh, look, listen, ha. Huh. We, uh, we don't follow false religion. I am not an atheist. I'm a lot smarter than that. In fact, yes, even though I am not a Christian, but I know that Jesus is a God man. I know that. I know that he is a savior of the world. So I guess I am wiser than atheists and all those false religions. Friend, listen to me. I say to you, you're not wiser. You're more foolish. What? How dare you say that? What do you mean? I know that Jesus died and rose again. I know he came to save sinners. I know knowledge so much better than all these silly people. Friend, how foolish do you have to be to know that Jesus has all power to save you, yet you reject him? To be so close to be saved, to have both of your feet at the borderline of God's kingdom, to hear Jesus Christ calling upon you to come to him. To know that his hand is stretched out to you. That all you need to do is to call upon him and you will be saved. And yet you reject him. And so you'll be eternally damned. How foolish do you have to be? And all the while... Yet Christ and him alone, hidden in him, are all treasures of wisdom and knowledge of salvation. Dear friend, be wise and come to Christ. Be wise and come to him. Well, that's the fourth point, treasures of salvation. But perhaps, and and. and I find the best meaning of this phrase that number point, point number five, which is the last point. So um, we don't have much to go. Revelation of God. Not only the knowledge of salvation found in Jesus Christ, but the knowledge of God found in Jesus Christ. I believe this verse can mean that. 
that nothing displays the wisdom and the knowledge of God. That is to say, his attributes are far more brighter and they shine all the more in Jesus Christ. Let me say it one more time in a different way, perhaps. Nothing in the world would help us to dive to the depth of the realm of possibility to know the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God than when we know Jesus Christ himself. You want to know God? You've got to know Christ. What does this mean? I want to give you three examples. Then we wrap it up and we finish with some applications. Three examples that show that through Jesus Christ, you will know God far more than anything else in the world. Number one, the wisdom of God. Now we know that one of the most mind-boggling questions in the minds of the philosophers for centuries is this. How do you reconcile God's justice with his mercy? God is infinite in his just and infinite in his mercy. In his justice and infinite in his mercy. Now, in a world where there is no sin, it's a hypothetical question and, you know, it's not a big deal. You just move on and get on with life. But when sin has stained every fabric, every faculty of human, there is. I can't think of a more important question. And we know that if God would destroy all humanity in one hand, then yes, his justice will be displayed. Absolutely. But where is his mercy? You can't find his mercy. It would be buried under his justice. And on the other hand, if God would turn a blind eye to sin in order to display his mercy, well, where is his justice? He's not just anymore, is he? And I dare to say that even angels would have never figured out how to resolve this tension. But look how marvelous is the wisdom of God displayed in Jesus Christ. How both the mercy of God and the justice of God are perfect in harmony with one another in Christ. How? In that God would unite Jesus with sinners. And in that unity, such a strong bond, powerful bond, all the sins of sinners would be transferred to Christ. And when that happens, God would pour out his wrath upon his son in such that, that his justice is satisfied and displayed. And then grants forgiveness to those undeserving sinners so his mercy would also be displayed in Christ. God's wisdom is revealed like nowhere else in the world. Second example. God's hatred towards sin cannot be more visible than in Jesus Christ. Now, yes, it is true that God's hatred towards sin 
can be seen when, when he, let's say, for example, um, brought the flood and drowned all humans in that great flood, killing every single person except for Noah and his family. That's true. Or later on, when, when he poured out uh, fire from heaven and burned Sodom and Gomorrah because of homosexuality. But what is destroying wicked, vile sinners who really don't deserve to live in comparison to when the eternal Son of God, who is although he's eternally, infinitely pleasurable, his immeasurable beauty in the Son of God, sinless, undefiled, without blemish, and we bring that Son of God, and though He is sinless, but because He's just being the sin bearer, what does the Father do? The Father would saw our sin in Him, and He didn't hold back. He bruised Him. He crushed Him. He grinded Him, pouring the entirety of His wrath upon Jesus Christ without even a gram of mercy until God's holiness is vindicated. How? In what? In the brutal death and punishment of His Son, Jesus. There is one thing to show hatred towards sin by destroying sinful creatures. And there's another thing. Empty out your wrath upon the sinless and the most beloved Son. And so in Christ, we see how much God hates sin. Third example. God's love cannot be more visible than in the person of Jesus Christ. God's love cannot be any more visible, cannot be more displayed than in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you a verse, Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates, meaning makes known, reveals His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Suppose that God would want to spare mighty and powerful angels. And the way to do that is by sending his son to die for them. We would say, wow, God loves these, these angels, right? But we're not angels. We, we who are in comparison to these mighty, powerful beings, we're like frogs, Right? Why us? Why? Why did Christ die for me? A weak human. All right, we'll take it one step further. Suppose that God would send his son to die for sinless humans. Right? People that never sinned before. Suppose all that they do is righteous deeds. We would still say, wow, this is awesome. The the infinite would die for the finite. It's a great thing, the creator, to give his life 
for creatures? Us, human? What kind of love is this that is revealed in Christ? Right? But brothers, that's not the case. That is not the case. God's love for us hidden in Christ is far more extravagant than this. Because when God looked upon you, looked upon me from heaven, what did he see? He didn't see mighty angels. He saw worms. He saw less than worms. He didn't see any righteousness in us that would be pleasing in his sight. And though we may comb our hair and iron our shirts, and we think that we are decent people, but in God's eyes, he looked through our appearance. And what did he see? You know what he saw? He saw thugs. He saw rebels. He saw men and women with dark black heart, full of vile, filthy corruption, full of pride and lustful passions. And if that is not enough, on top of all, and the worst of all, what did he see? He saw men and women daily shaking their fist against the Almighty, always rebelled against him. Brothers, what kind of love is this? For him to take his only begotten son, to nail him to a tree, and unleash all his fury, anger, again a sin on his son to save worms like us. How boundless, immeasurable this love of God must be. For us, brothers, but can only be known and revealed in Christ. All right, time is running out. How do we apply this in our lives? How do we apply this? What are the three greatest gifts in your life? Christ. The greatness of Christ and the fact you can never drain or exhaust that greatness available to you, brothers and sisters. What does this mean? How do we apply this? Do you have challenges in your life? Who doesn't, right? Or is it just me? Does life throw at you trials, obstacles, and your future looks like a, a big puzzle and you just don't know how to resolve it? Speak to your soul, brothers. Speak to your soul. It's not a, you're not crazy when you speak. It's only crazy when you respond back. Right? And say to your soul, rest in Christ, my soul. Rest in Him. Why? The one who possesses all wisdom and knowledge. He loves me. He died for me. And I may not know what the future holds for me, but He knows, and that's enough for me. He's able to lead me. 
He's able to guide me. He's able to take care of me through this maze of life. Another application. If all knowledge and wisdom are found in Christ alone, how are we going with pursuing knowing Him? How are we going with that? Have we made it our goal in life to study Him, to know Him, to follow Him? How can we ignore such wonderful truth and live our lives the same? No, brothers. No. We must not waste our lives knowing worthless things. We must fight against those passions of the flesh Laziness, just sit back and endless hours just doing this, flicking TikTok. And we must stop that. We must move away from that. Because how beneficial would that be for us? Every soul must say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, I count all things to be lost. In the view of the surpassing value of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Amen. Unbelievers, dear friends, You've heard what God the Father has done to Jesus Christ. Though he is sinless, yet because he was a sin bearer, he unleashed all his fury upon him. What will he do to you? You who are sinful and innerly, totally corrupt and still bearing your own sin. What would he do to you for eternity to come? If you do not run to Christ and find salvation in Him today, this Jesus, the author of salvation, the one and the only one that salvation is hidden in Him alone, is stretching His hand to you and offering you yet another chance to come to Him and be saved. Don't be a fool, dear friend. Don't be a fool. Cry out to God. Tell God, awaken my soul. Awaken me, God. Enlighten my eyes. Let me see Jesus to be my Savior, my Lord. And run to Him. Cling to Him and tell Him, Jesus, I believe you died for me. You died for me. You rose again for me. You've given me eternal life. Run to him, friend. Don't be a fool. He will save you. He will take you in. Receive to himself. Cleanse you. Change you. Forgives you. He will bring you. And will seat you at his table. And will feed you. Come to him, friend. Amen.
Let's pray. Lord God, marvelous is your son, Jesus. Great is he. He is exalted above all. We pray, Father, that this mighty Jesus may invade every heart in this room and would live within every heart, saves every heart, sanctifies every heart, and ultimately would glorify every person in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.